0: Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Tonight's guest is somebody who landed on my radar in the early 1990s as the vocalist for the all-woman barrier band Spitboy. She also did time as the vocalist for Aus Rotten a little further east, I believe. We have a shared love of writing, a shared love of the city of Oakland. In 2021, to talk recent history, Don Giovanni Records released Spitboy's Body of Work, Involving all the material from their three LPs, their one LP, their split 12-inch with Los Crudos. What really caught my eye in doing the drill down on that is all, that all the proceeds from that record, 100% of them, go to the National Women's Law Center. I find that exciting stuff. I find that inspiring stuff. Adrian Stone, thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Certainly, you and I spent some time in the same city, some time in the same city during one of the most exciting times to be there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Spitboy started in 1990, right?
1: Yeah. So Spitboy started in 1990. Um, I had become friends with uh, Todd, um, who goes by Michelle now. So I might flip flop between Todd and Michelle because I just I'm so used to calling her Todd. But um, yeah, she and I became friends, and I remember we went drinking one night, like drinking peppermint schnapps outside of Gilman. You know, just being young and 21 years old and silly and then she was like do you want to be in a band do you want to you know sing for from this band I want to start and I was like sure sounds great I'd never been in a band before but um, I thought it would be fun because I'd been involved in the punk scene and seen a lot of bands play and so yeah I just thought it would be a great experience
0: yeah I was going to ask you by asking you the year you started that whether that puts you somewhere you know in the neighborhood are 20 or 21 and it sounds like yes yeah (laughs) is it a trip now with the release of body of work to be reminded or brought back face to face with your perspective from anywhere from 26 to 30 years ago
1: you know like when i listen to the music now it's i still i feel like it still resonates there's the message that we were singing and the emotions and the feelings behind it. It's not like any of that feels like it's become irrelevant or that we've all of a sudden uh, cured sexism or we're so much further along than we were before. And so I think sometimes I look back and I, and I think about how I felt back then and everything was so extreme. It was, you know, so intense and, The highs were really highs and the lows were really lows. And so those emotions I can look back on and, and I can be like, okay, I respect that. I don't want to feel that way anymore. Like that level of intensity, but I feel like the lyrics and what we were singing about and what was so important to us is still really important today.
0: You were a strident, forceful presence. You just talked about these sort of talked about the intensity and everything else inside baseball. I remember arriving in the Bay Area, and I met Karen first out of all of you, but I remember mm-hmm. when around anybody in Spitboy, I was on my toes because I felt like an ignorant, hyper-male, ex-football-playing Orange County meathead. And you know, <laughs> I, was in the, I, was, I was in the Bay Area to become exactly that, or the, exactly the opposite yeah. of that. My question as far as then versus now and as far as things that were said then, I, I expected as much that the moral stances of the band would, real, would hold up really well you know, which some stuff does from them. Some stuff doesn't. I would say yours does. I found an interview, you know, when I kept asking you for more time and more time to do research from 1994. In it, you say you're 25 years old and you state very clearly, I'm not a feminist. Yes. I'd like to hear modern day Adrian's take on that.
1: (laughs) So I have never considered myself a feminist. Uh, If anything, I would call myself a humanist um if that's a word I don't know like I feel that as the things that I face and I struggle with as a woman back in my early 20s 30s 40s 50s and onward that I have things that I have to deal with things that I have to navigate and things that are challenging and painful and awful but you as a man also have things that you have to navigate and you have to figure out and that are painful and awful and that as much as society tries to dictate the way that I'm supposed to behave as a woman it's also dictating the way that you're supposed to behave as a man Mm -hmm. and I feel like rather than being like well I'm you know it's it's all about the women and 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 what we're going through and the challenges that we face I feel like it's better to go hey it's about all of us we are all in this struggle we are all a part of the problem we are all a part of the solution and so if we don't collectively come together and try to figure this out then how are we going to make any changes in everything that we're supposed to deal with when it comes to sexism and not just sexism towards women but sexism towards men and gender roles and well, how you're supposed to behave versus how you want to behave how the person that you are versus who you're supposed to be based on society standards mm-hmm. so i even had i remember i was visiting friends in washington dc and a friend of mine who was at the house i was staying at was like hey can you come you know, walk around the block with me. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. So we go out for a walk. And he's like, so my girlfriend wanted me to let you know that she thinks you're a male sympathizer. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, so I usually her- hear that.
0: I usually hear that paired with Nazi. And I would like to think my gender is not immediately equivocable. With fascism.
1: <laughs> I know I was like, so first off, she didn't come to this house to tell me herself. Right. She's having her boyfriend tell me this. Okay. And I was like, I I don't see this as something like a male sympathizer. Like, I think I sat down the next day in the morning and wrote her a letter and just kind of said, hey, you know, you want to say something like that? You can come. I'm in your city. You can come find me and you can say it right to me. And we can have a discussion about it, but it's not something I'm going to talk about with your boyfriend. So, yeah, so I think sometimes people had a perception of who I was or what they wanted me to be. But, you know, of course, that's the same with everybody. People have perceptions of you, you know, based on the bands you've been in or the things you've written about, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's who you are. So... Yeah, I was
0: two things occurred to me while I was getting ready for this. And, you know, you and I already had a vague understanding of each other and had some of our own private conversations even before the the podcast existed online. The two things I thought about having already come across that quote where you said you don't refer to yourself as a feminist is that in all of the archival materials out there in the world of punk rock, it's virtually impossible to investigate Spitboy without coming across the word feminist over and over again. Yeah, right which I thought that must be a real pain in Adrian's ass. And then the other thing, which I won't put a lot of time into, but a lot of what you just said about your reasons for not embracing that word, I think are a big part of why you made a chosen distinction between yourselves and the riot girl movement. Would that be fair?
1: Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I didn't think that it was fair. You know, I, I had all these amazing friends in my life who were men and I didn't think it was fair that they should get punished you know, like stand in the back of the room, pay more to get into a show, all that kind of stuff just didn't seem fair to me. It's like, why am I going to treat them badly? As much as we are all part of the problem, they're trying to also be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. So how is this helping? I I just didn't ever really understand uh, the right girl movement. And it never felt like something that I was comfortable in and, Yeah, so it's just not something I ever got involved in.
0: There's an interesting thing that you know, to compare it to something I'm even less connected to this time by virtue of my my Irish complexion as opposed to my gender. But I always found fascinating when you would look back uh, during the Black Power movement, and you would have a figure like Malcolm X, who you would ask them, "What's the role, or what's how does a basically what's the role of an ally of a progressive or of a of a well-meaning white person?" And Malcolm X would say, "None." which that is the back of the room, these lyric sheets are for my people philosophy. The Black Panthers, who are arguably more militant than Malcolm, just say we absolutely need white allies. We need Brando out there pimping the cause. We need Seabird pimping the cause. And it's funny how that dynamic just seems to occur over and over again within resistance movements between isolation and, and productive cooperation.
1: Take the band Fugazi and their song Suggestion. Right. And I remember, you know, it's a powerful song about, you know, women being out in the world and and what they have to deal with. And so many women were in support of that song, but they also got a lot of shit for it, too. Like, oh, you don't understand what it's like. How can you write this? You're a man. And it's like they're trying to understand. Mm -hmm. They're trying to like have some perspective they're having their own feelings and thoughts and emotions about this and why are you why would anyone want to discourage that why would anyone say that's not appropriate or you shouldn't have done that it's like that song is so powerful you know and an incredible song and if it made other people you know maybe some guy out there is not a fan of spitboy but maybe he loves fugazi and hears that song and goes oh you know this is something i'm going to think about you know like cuz this is coming from a source that's more relatable to me for whatever reason I would So say
0: maybe doors have to be opened by someone as close to possible as one as from one's own tribe for them to even go into a room filled with the other and make it less yeah. other you oh, know yeah. what i mean yeah there's some quick background on then and on perspective then So that's time. Let's do a little bit of place. Before 1990, were you already a Bay Area kid?
1: Yeah, I was. I grew up in Pleasanton, uh, California, which is outside of the Bay Area, and then got into the punk scene in around 1984 and 85 and was going to like the Mabuhe Gardens um, in San Francisco and um, the New Method Warehouse in Emeryville. And so... Yeah, so I'd already been actively involved in the punk scene before Spitboy started, but just kind of more seeing, you know, like watching bands play. And I had been involved when I moved out of my parents' house. I moved into the Maximum Rock and Roll house, and I lived with Timmy O'Hanon and Martin Sprouse and Jane Guskin. Um, But I was very young, and that did not end well.
0: (laughs) I'm doing my best to learn the craft and then never to, uh, never to uh, interrupt. interrupt. And then I hear something I really want to hear, which is <laughs> exactly what year did you move in?
1: Uh, I graduated high school in 1986. So oh. it was around that time. Well, what
0: I was thinking is 85 and 86 were the years that me and my friend, Billy started making like these weekend field trips to stay in the maximum basement. So I can relate to what oh. was going on in the house at that exact time.
1: Yeah. Like it was just, I was just too young and just kind of, it's like, I went from my parents' house into that house. Mm-hmm. There was no way that that was going to be a smooth transition. Because I was just like, I'm going to go crazy. I'm 18. <laughs> you
0: know? Were you I a t- problem child happen. in the Maximum Rock and Roll house?
1: <laughs> totally. So I was just like, no. I think I was packing to tell them I was moving out. I'm like packing. And on a tortilla, they wrote... Tim wrote, I don't think it was they, but Tim wrote something like, I think it's better if you moved out and slipped it under the door as I was packing to get ready. And I saw the tortilla and I read it like Sharpie on it. And I was like, we're on the same page. And Tim (laughs) and I stayed good friends. You know, he, he drove me crazy at times, just like I drove him crazy. But, you know, I loved him. He was awesome person, you know, never would have lived with him again. Right. Yeah.
0: It's that puts you there immediately pre Gilman street that puts you there pre epicenter, the things that as a young person, I went, Holy fuck, this barrier is Mecca. Yeah. And this is where you learn true DIY. Did you have kind of a perspective similar to that or.
1: Yeah, I actually was involved in um, Gilman street before it opened. Um, And I was part of the membership committee. So that $2 fee. You can blame me. I will take full responsibility all being right. part of that. But yeah, there's like I have an old black and white photo of all of us sitting around, and we'd have these meetings about you know what was Gilman Street going to be, and you know someone would say, well, it's going to take a lot of man work, and another person would say, that's people work. <laughs>
0: you know. <laughs> like... Well, but you know what's funny? They're not wrong. No. It's just there's... it's just it's it's just keeping the screws a little tight. Yep. Totally.
1: So yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. I mean, you know, I remember when they had the first show there and then I just kind of went off and did my own thing for a while, but um, yeah, no, it was, it was great to be young and a part of something being organized that became so vital and so important. And then to kind of transition back into it as someone who would go to shows there every weekend and then started playing um playing shows there you know all the time like we played at Gilman Spitboy played at Gilman all the time so. I'm
0: curious being ground level like that in the creation of the venue in the in the, the I remember I, you know I I would be in maximum rock and roll staff meetings and other other weird communal settings for that sort of unique brand of democracy they would have but did that yeah. give you a comfort level that was maybe a little bit of a secret weapon in terms of when you finally took the stage because you weren't an unknown this is telling me you weren't an unknown commodity and you weren't in a room full of strangers.
1: No, I think uh, I, I think Gilman was always someplace that felt really safe to play. Like mm-hmm. um, we always, people are always so supportive and so kind. And um, so, and, you know, it'd be like a room full of my friends or potential friends, you know, like if it was people I didn't know, then I'd maybe get to know them, you know? So we got really... It was a really great experience. I feel like we got really lucky to be in the Bay Area at a time when Gilliman was so relevant and so vital. And you know, you go to these shows and it'd be like, you know, a veil's plane and there's a line that just goes down the whole street, you know, and right. the place is packed and it's so much energy and, and just yeah. No. I yeah, incredible.
0: Yeah. As this music goes on for decades and decades and morphs and goes into some spaces that you and I probably believe it belongs in, in some spaces we probably don't, and some we don't agree on, some aspects of it are weird. Like, I remember how small Gilman was and how varied those bills were. And when I moved up there in 90, how familiar everybody in that town was with was like, yeah, you know, Jawbreaker doesn't sound like a, like a Conochrist, but, you know, Ben and Adam know each other pretty goddamn well, you know, like that kind yeah. of thing. It still strikes me as bizarre, even knowing that when things happen like Rolling Stone coverage and Billy participating in the discography, I never in a million years coming from this cannery industrial space to now would ever be able to predict that connection. Is that kind of a weird, you know, wind sprinting on a pontoon bridge thing for you?
1: Yeah, like when... When we were working on putting all this stuff together for the record and we wanted someone to do liner notes, I suggested Kent McClard because I was like, you know, he's he's such a great writer and he, um, you know, he was so involved with Spitboy that that just seemed, you know, really a good match for me. But uh, the other women were more interested in having Billy Joe, you know, like so and we were friends with Billy Joe back in the day before Green Day blew up so big. He helped us find our second bass player, Dominique, you know? Um, so, and I thanked him on one of our records because he introduced me to Dominique so that, and I saw her play, and ran up to her right as she was finished and was like, please join Spitboy. And she's like, what? So, but yeah, to have all of a sudden Billy Joe, who's now who he is in Mm -hmm. the music industry and Rolling Stone, you know, writing a couple of articles about Spitboy is, is definitely, if you had told my 21 to 25 year old self, that would happen. I'd be like outraged (laughs) and like totally just like, wouldn't, no, I would not think that that would ever happen, but you know, X amount of years later, we're doing this as a benefit for the women's law center. If it gets, you know, a single more record if, if one more person buys a record based on that article or because billy joe talks or something about Spitboy, then to me it's worth it
0: just to check on the impact of one more locale on you you know i know you did house rotten later and yes. i know you know which is at least in their infancy a band from pittsburgh for me my mental tie like when i hear that i immediately think of the profane existence scene and I remember yeah. the limited time I spent in Profane Existence House, and I got that, 4 got to play there and stuff. But where and when did that actually go on? Like your participation in the band?
1: So I, they were, like when you, I was living in New York, um, like after the band ended in 1995, I moved to Virginia for two years. And then I moved to New York for five years. Um, so yeah, I think time frame wise that's right but um, around that time. And so Osratan was coming to stay with us and I wasn't super familiar with their music. I just knew them as people who would come and stay at the India Street warehouse in Brooklyn. We had this massive, huge warehouse space. So we always had bands staying with us. And they were just the nicest, sweetest people. And I just, I loved them as people. So when Corey was like, hey, do you want to join Ostraten and sing some songs with us? I was like, yeah, I have no idea what you guys are about, but I love you guys as people. So sure, I will do this. And then he wouldn't ask the other band members if that would be okay. I was like, oh, hold on. You haven't asked anyone else yet? Like you just asked me and okay, go ask them make sure that they're okay with this like you know if they're not i totally get it but yeah everyone was on board and and it was such a positive amazing experience to be in a band with them like yeah i feel like i feel like lightning struck twice you know i had my experience with Spitboy and then my experience with Astronaut and, and to have both of them be such uh powerful experiences was just you know I just I feel really lucky
0: you're, you know, a lot of these different spaces that you're describing where you were living in or where you were exposed to other musicians who dramatically impacted you on the one hand, they were underground. And at least for me, it was a sexy time in life and that I learned a more dangerous way of being and behaving that I ever would have manifested in my hometown. Right. It was also an activist culture. Right. And I largely, and I will have to admit that. I don't speak modern activist as well as I would like to I'm politically outspoken. I know you've read some of my shit talking, you know, I'm opinionated, but when I run up against what I would say maybe are the current keepers of the flame, it's like being back in 1990 and arriving in the Bay area and that I have to examine my habits and my, my manner, manner of speech. I mean, I'm not for lack of a better term, politically incorrect, but I'm not up to date. I don't get the memos.
1: Oh, gosh, I have huge conversations with my husband, Jeremy, where I'll just be like, "Okay, can we have a conversation about why a certain term is no longer an acceptable term? And then we'll have like an hour long discussion because he is he is very tuned in with this. Okay, and so some so I feel like, thank goodness, because I will totally stumble and trip my way and put my foot in my mouth and do other horrible things, not just out of ignorance, just out of not mm-hmm. knowing, you know, kind of wh- how things are changing and, and, and being more aware of that, you know, and I feel like part of it is that online, the only thing I'm going to put online is, you know, photos of my puppies, garden, my house, you know, like I renovate something, I decorate or something. Because if I want to have an intense personal or political conversation, that's going to have to be in person, or that's going to have to be on the phone, you know, like I might even do it via email. But I feel like for me, the things that i that, you know, that I either struggle with, or that are deeply personal, or that are political, I just want it to be a more intimate experience, you know, like I want to do this versus, and i and I feel like some people do it well. Like I like your post, the things that you write and the way that you verbalize your thoughts and, and your politics online. And I've seen other people where it's just copy and paste, put something up that Mm -hmm. they saw somewhere, you know, like where it doesn't feel like there's a lot of thought behind it. Maybe there's emotion, but they're not, I feel like a lot of your writing can tends to be kind of a little vulnerable and and more real versus just putting posting something and being like, here's my anti-Trump thing, that imagery that I'm just posting, and nothing really of substance behind it. Yeah, I just try to stay clear of that online, you know, I have those <laughs> thoughts,
0: just call me. Well, I think there's a wisdom in that. And I think maybe a discipline that I don't, that I've only half mastered. And what it is is, I can keep myself out of the comments sections pretty well, because that's <laughs> just that's just you know bobbing for apples in a toilet. Oh gosh, yeah, uh, you know,
1: I like I I saw the secondary someone had put it on YouTube, this a song I did with Al mm-hmm. and I was like, oh gosh, I haven't listened to this in years, and I played it, and I was like, it it stirred up all these emotions, oh. and then I read the comments. Oh, and I'd, I'd have to say 80% of them, maybe even 90% were great and very kind and supportive comments, but the ones that weren't, like, you know, things like she just wants someone to rape her and it's oh, like, Jesus. oh my God, like oh. terrible, just awful.
0: To me, you and I are, are sort of doing a sideways analysis of the impact of the digital age or of the social networks or of immediate response, call and response in politics that uh, to me it, it is massively important. And, and here's, here's what I mean by this. We would think and spend time at our desks and write things for a week and then put them, put them out and they would be printed months later, right? Now we all digest each other's knee jerk reaction to things immediately and yep. there's an anonymity that comes with the internet that allows people to be very ugly without fear of reprisal. Yeah. I think that ability to communicate and to transmit information immediately is a great thing and I don't want to walk away from it, but I think the other side is pure poison.
1: No, I agree. Like um sometimes I know I you and I had written I think a long time ago and I was like, "Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book about spitboy." Mm-hmm. And sometimes I still think about it and everything that I would want to do with that. But then, and if we were probably in a pre-internet age, then I'd feel more comfortable doing that. But post-internet age or in the middle of internet age, it's like, I just can't even imagine navigating the, the amount of support I would get would, would be probably great and, and very nice and helpful, but the amount of hatred and, you know, just crazy things that people do when someone puts themselves out there on the internet. And especially, I feel like women do get targeted. So I just, I just, a part of me is just not, you know, I go back and forth like, yeah, I can do it. And then I just go, I don't know if I can set myself up for that.
0: Well, I, I, I can't
1: fault you. Yeah. Right. I don't know how I would be able to comfortably navigate it, you know, like, cause the internet can be brutal and, and I've seen it. I've seen terrible things happen to people via internet and I just don't know if that's something I want to necessarily jump in the middle of, but I do feel like I lived through something that was very unique and, and having these experiences, I feel like I want to share them and, and it might potentially inspire somebody. I don't know, but yeah, it's just whether I feel comfortable doing that.
0: I think that if you did something like that, and I think this based really on the way that you first contacted me and the things that you were curious about, and the degree to which you were polite and open to suggestion about just writing in general, about the form itself, is I suspect you would do something very thought out and very real, unless, and yes, that would leave you in a very vulnerable position. That said, I think that work not being out there is a loss to people other than you. In other words, I think it would inspire and I think it would, you know, it would contribute to the right side of the dialogue.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. I think I would want to write a book that was kind of like, like not so much about, you know, women doing this thing and women empowerment, but just more like, here is this crazy sex, drugs, rock and roll adventure. And here's everything that we did. And here's the struggles that we faced as women, playing music in the punk scene and some of the really fucked up things that happened to us and here's these other great moments that were just you know moments of triumph or you know just had endless possibilities and staying up all night and crazy conversations with you know random people that we meet in the middle of Europe you know like Mm all the things that, you know, having been on tour, you know, all the kind of tour adventures that people can get into. And I just think that it would be, it would be, it would feel really good for me to release that and let that out um, and share that. But yeah.
0: Writing it and releasing it are two different things. I think you ought to at least write it.
1: Yes. And then I could be like, here, Dan, read this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that, you know, <laughs> Knowing who you were and having always perceived you as, as as something of a badass, when you reached out to me in very complimentary fashion about writing and wanting to talk about sort of the ingredients of it, it was one of the more flattering things to happen to me that year. So thank you for that.
1: Oh gosh, no problem. That's it. in writing back. I appreciate that.
0: Well, let's do this for a second. What is the most satisfying kind of writing to you? And, you know, in sort of having a hesitancy about putting, personal stuff out there does it lessen your love for the craft or are you still all about it
1: no I love to write I mean you know back in the day I was writing for Maximum Rock and Roll Profane Existence Mm -hmm. Slug and Lettuce uh I asked Kent if I could write for um Heart Attack and he was like you're literally writing in every other single zine like (laughs) You cannot also have, you know, heart attack, but, um, no, I, I love to write and it's, you know, now it comes back more in the form of like long emails where, you know, I get into it with my best friend or other friends of mine that I'm writing to. Um, I used to, I have so many journals, you know, where I'd sit and just write in the journals and which will be good. Reference material if I ever write a book, um, but yeah, I still love to write. It's just you know more personal now. Okay. My friend Kamala is actually she for my birthday she signed me up for this thing called I can't even remember the name of it like Story Time or something. Mm-hmm. And every week they send you a question that you're supposed to answer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you know it would be like, what was your favorite thing to do in high school? And so I'd be like, hmm, okay. And then I would write Adrian versus the pit bull. And I just like (laughs) writing some random story about when I almost got attacked by a pit bull riding my bike, you know, like, Mm -hmm. And so I started trying to answer the questions they were giving. And then I was like, you know, some of the just that doesn't interest me, but I'm writing these little vignettes. And so then I send them off to Kamala and this storyteller thing. And then at the end, they actually do put it in a book. So she's kind of making me write a book, just all these experiences and stuff. And it's been great. It's so much fun. Like, because mm-hmm. I'll just sit there and be like, what do I feel like writing about now? Oh, when this guy, you know, we're mm-hmm. in a um, tour in Europe and this guy tried to attack me, you know, right. like I'm going to write about, that, about, you know, this person trying to sexually assault me, you know, like, and mm-hmm. so then I write an article about that or not article, but, I write this thing for Kamala, send it off to her. And so, you know, so that's Uh, great.
0: You keep your instrument sharp. I don't write as often as I should. As we move off of the topic of writing though, almost never. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm notorious for the thing that the internet does to me that's, I think is pretty non-conventional and some people get on me about it. I will write something I really like and only leave it up for three hours. And when I'm tired oh. of the feedback or I don't need to read it anymore, I'll yank it. But my friend, Eric said, yeah, but you don't save it it anywhere. Do you stupid? And I was like, you know, yeah, I don't
1: um, like, damn it. Hold on.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah. the only thing I, I want to move off of writing just because it's, you know, you and I could end up being very self-indulgent, just comparing notes on dialogue and things like that, oh, gosh, yeah. but we could well, go on for hours, but you can expect me to bother you later in the year again about the fact that I think you should at least write the book. Okay. <laughs> um, there were two more there were two more subjects I wanted to touch uh, while I, while I had you here. One is somewhat generic and that it's not unique to our experiences, but I would like to get your take on cancel culture. First, how you would define it and whether or not you think it has any productive place or maybe who knows Maybe you're a fan, but I'm interested in, First off what you view it as actually being and how you feel about it.
1: So I've only had um, one experience with something that I would call cancel culture. I'm not really familiar with it besides this one experience. And it wasn't even my personal experience. It was something that I witnessed happen to somebody else. Okay. And when it was all happening, it was horrifying because I'd never seen the internet weaponized that way. And I, it broke my heart for the person that was going through it we're still friends, you know, it periodically, it comes up, but, um, you know, that we'll talk about it. But I feel like at least in what I witnessed, it's like, did this person make a mistake and fuck up? Yes. Were they apologetic? When we talked about it? Yes. I don't know how it all played out online, because I wasn't watching every single last detail of it. But In my community and and the way that I grew up is that if you fuck up somebody, a group of your friends or your best friend or somebody is going to set you aside and go, we need to talk because Mm -hmm. you fucked up. This is, you know, and we're going to work our way through it because you have to learn and we want you to learn. We want you to stay a part of our community. We want you to grow and develop as a human being. So we don't want to destroy you. We want to take this as a learning opportunity for you to become a better person. And if we don't talk to you about this, then how is that ever going to happen? And what I saw happening online wasn't like, hey, let's have this great learning experience. Hey, let's all grow and develop together. Let's come together as a community and address this issue. So then we can all, it was just, it was just vicious and scary. It was terrifying to watch. So that's been my experience, whether what happened with her was technically cancel culture. I don't know. My husband and I were actually talking about this last night, like what is cancel culture and what does it mean? And and so we both were kind of coming from different points of view on it. But um, And like I said, he is much more savvy with the way things are in the world, so I might have an incorrect understanding of it. But if what happened to her was cancel culture, then it's it's brutal. Well, you two know, things.
0: I- First off, sister, it would be bullshit if we didn't translate it as old people who don't quite get it. <laughs> I'm yes. of the I'm of the opinion that it is largely a younger person's weapon, which maybe is ageist of me. I don't know. Um, but other than that, I see it almost exactly as you do. Because what it does is it tends to take actions or, and oftentimes past actions, and try to use them to disqualify people from, on, from the ongoing public dialogue. And yeah. we all tend to believe in evolution and growth, and it denies the existence of either. So it's, it's massively hypocritical.
1: Yeah. I remember when, like, back in the day in the punk scene, this woman that we were friends with. She passed out at a party and woke up and her ex-boyfriend was raping her at the party and she knew it was him. And so everyone came together. Like the next day, people were gathering at this one house talking about what are we going to do what action do we take some people were like we'll talk to him other people were like I have a knife I'm going to fucking kill him like other you know like everyone trying to figure out I mean they were literally someone with a knife who was like mm-hmm. I am going to kill him like but it was everyone together going okay we have to address this and we have to figure out how you know like what do we do because this person's in our scene And so, you know, they I'm sure he it was my understanding that he got pulled into the meeting, not physically, but, you know, he was like, hey, you have to come to this meeting. And there was long conversations with him. And eventually he moved out of this out of the city. Like, I don't know where he moved to, but he moved away because people were like, this isn't okay," But it wasn't it felt different because people were trying to have a dialogue about it, whether they wanted to have a conversation, wanted to kill him. Like there was still, it felt like, okay, we're all learning. We're all grappling with this. We're all, you know, dealing with our feelings around this versus, well, you're just, that's it. You know, like, yeah. I mean the person that wanted to kill him was probably like just done, you know? Right. But Yeah. It just, it, and that feels different to me than what happens nowadays online, you know, mm-hmm. because that feels more like an attack versus a group of people coming together to navigate and deal with a horrible situation.
0: Well, do you remember, no, uh, you know, it's, it's your floor, but I was going to say, do you remember during Occup, during um, Occupy Wall Street, you would see these great pieces of footage of general assemblies in New York and in Oakland and, every, and everywhere else and people would be speaking with their fingers rather than interrupting each other and there was a democracy to the nth degree in the left and sort of in the progressive dialogue that seems to be completely out the window in a very short period of time
1: yeah no I agree I think that I think that what we were talking about earlier with the internet where It allows people to be more anonymous. It allows people to say things that they may not necessarily say to someone's face. It's like, I can post something, but am I going to walk up to you and say to your face what I'm going to post? And to me, if I'm not willing to come to you directly, stand in front of you and say what I just said, then I'm not going to fucking post it. You know, like that's then to me, that's being hypocritical and and hiding behind the Internet, you know. So, yeah, I just I just feel like it's one of the things that as amazing as the Internet has been there, of course, is so many issues that it's brought about. And so much as much as it connects us, it also horribly disconnects us and keeps us separated and apart you know mm-hmm. and we think we're connected when we're like doing this and scrolling through and looking at photos of our mm-hmm. friends but it's like okay i'm i'm getting somebody might know that i moved into a new house cuz i'm posting photos of decorations but come to my house be in my house with me walk through this like talk to me
0: sister me you're tell- getting ahead of my outline <laughs> <laughs> that's where we're that's where we're headed next
1: It's because my secret camera that's pointed at your desk sees all your notes. So, you know.
0: So there are two more things I want to talk about. They're lighter than the, than the last batch of subject matter. And they're very Adrian specific. Okay. The first would be that I have followed when you've moved and when you've had to sell a home and what you've done and you and your husband seem to create beautiful spaces to live in. Now. My perception of you at a distance over the years jives much more with the wall full of hooks and knives and whips that's behind you. But uh, how big a part of your life is that creating a setting to live in? Because there seems to be considerable energy and skill dedicated to it. So,
1: and this, you know, I I know you said light, but Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're going to go where it goes. Fair enough. Uh, I think for me, growing up being abused makes home so important and so vital for it to be a safe space for me to be in, because I grew up in a space that was very unsafe and unhealthy and dangerous for me as a, as a child and as a young, you know, like teenager and stuff. So once I started getting, you know, I tried to move out when I was 16 or 17 and my mom said, if you move out, I'll call the police. But I tried getting out as early as I could. But the second I turned 18, I was gone. And I started working, uh, you know, on creating spaces, whether it was a an, a room in a punk house or, you know, when I finally bought my own house and then this one, uh, it's so important to me to be in a space that feels safe. Like I have slept with a punching knife next to my bed for the last 30 years. Okay. Right. And it's a gorgeous, beautiful piece of weaponry that literally anytime there's a photo of my of my bedroom, it's going to be right next to the bed because of that, wanting to feel that level of safety because of what I grew up with. So, yeah, I I put a lot of time and a lot of energy into things like this.
0: Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> no, I've, I, I, I've looked at your I've looked at your homes with envy and finding out what's behind that. Helps it make sense to me. And it's also, I think it's very giving of you to share that with everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like any, I feel like if you're a survivor of abuse, then, you know, we, everyone who has survived that finds their own way of feeling safe and, and hopefully they're healthy ways of feeling safe. I've done plenty of unhealthy things, you know, and unhealthy choices, but I feel like investing my energy into something like this feels like I'm creating that safe space that I never had when I was growing up. And that's, uh, and that's really important.
0: Well, I'm glad I asked. I know you said Um,
1: light. I'm so sorry. Ask me. No, no.
0: Sorry. I struck, (laughs) I, I struck gold when I was mining tin. Okay, the last one is actually between me and the listener, which is I could not in good conscience do this interview without letting people know that when we were deciding on time and getting this scheduled, Adrian is the only guest who has ever used extortion against me and she would not let me reset the time of the interview without what?
1: Being able to take a ride in Beatrice.
0: You didn't say take drive. a ride, you want to yeah, you want to drive my yeah. damn car.
1: Let me correct that. And it's funny cuz the other day I um My screensaver at work is a red um, Dodge Challenger. Mm -hmm. I was totally like, almost took a photo. And then I was like, no, I'm just dorking out way too hard. You know, like, uh, no, I love muscle cars. Mm -hmm. But in particular, it's the Dodge Challenger. I mean, they're phenomenal, beautiful cars.
0: Well, I will see you in February and you can give me a passenger's heart attack. So this, this.
1: We'll be like, hold on. I thought we were going to let Beatrice rip. And I'll be like, June 65 with the drinkers going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, well, listen, I hope you enjoyed this. It was, it was a, a very cool window in, in, into, into, into uh, your life. And I'm glad we set it up. We will do it again when we have good cause and good reason, unless you really piss me off behind the wheel. But uh, that, is a, <laughs> that is episode 38. And Adrian, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. Have a good night. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear.